0: Hello and welcome to Vulgar History Season 3. My name is Ann Foster and this is a feminist women's history comedy podcast. The season's theme is How to Lose a Queen in Nine Days, aka the Lady Jane Grey scenario. What we're doing with this theme is looking at several of the different people, specifically the women, and how they can help explain how and why a 16-year-old girl was the Queen of England for nine days in the 16th century. We've looked at Lady Jane Grey's grandmother, her step-grandmother, her two women who are sort of role models towards her, and then also her mother, and today we're actually looking at Lady Jane Grey herself. So it's not one might think that this podcast was going to slowly lead up to Jane Grey and that would be the finale, but this is kind of her midpoint, because the Lady Jane Grey scenario didn't just pop up out of nowhere, and once she was executed, the the power and the threat of her family of the greys didn't just go away so we're going to look at lady jane gray this week and then in the subsequent weeks we're going to look at the continued fallout of this whole wild thing that happened in in english history so just to do a recap and especially if somebody for some reason is listening to this episode and you haven't listened to the previous ones we'll just get up to speed on what what all was happening in the world at this point. So before, so Lady Jane Grey was crowned in 1553. Spoiler. Prior to that, the closest any woman had ever come to ruling England on her own, like not as a queen married to a king and the king was actually in charge, was when Empress Matilda attempted to seize the crown in the 12th century. So that's 300 years before. And I talked about that in season two of this podcast. So you can learn more about what happened with her Matilda never got closer than attempting to become a queen. Actually, she got so close, she was in Westminster Abbey, about to be crowned, and then people attacked, and then she had to flee, and so she never ended up actually becoming the queen. So that happened. Um, Her cousin ended up taking over. It was messy. Again, season two of this podcast explains it more fully. But so there wasn't at any point between then and 1553... A law saying a woman couldn't be solo queen of England. There wasn't any sort of law saying like it had, like, okay, there was a rule saying that it had to, like, you go to the male descendants first and only when there's not a male descendant, you go to the women descendants. But a woman could totally be queen. There's no rule against it. But the common law of the time said that women were, I don't know if the word is subservient, but as soon as a woman was married her husband had control over her money and her property and stuff so even if she was the queen as soon as she got married her husband would have lots and lots of power so that was sort of a weird paradigm for them to wrap their heads around thinking like okay a woman could be queen but then whoever her husband is who wouldn't be of royal blood necessarily would then have all this crazy power too so that was part of the issues but okay so between Matilda and the Lady Jane Grey scenario, there had never been a situation where a woman even almost became queen. There had always been a man or a boy, at least one, often several. There's always, you know, a king died and there was another man or a boy there waiting in the wings to take over. So no one ever had to really do these complex computations of what happens when a woman takes over. So there's a lot of reasons why the Lady Jane Grey scenario happened how and why this teenager became queen and so through the first several episodes of this season we looked at, so Henry VIII had two sisters his older sister Margaret married the king of Scots and then her descendants were Catholic so Henry crossed them off of the line of succession because he didn't want Scottish Catholics to be in charge so in his will Henry said like the crown should go to my children, my legitimate children he had some illegitimate children too And that's kind of the thing. So he had a son named Edward who everybody agreed was totally his legitimate son. He had two daughters, Mary and Elizabeth, who were kind of like legitimate and then illegitimate. And it was sort of confusing. And there was which left just enough wiggle room for the Lady Jane Grey scenario to happen. Henry VIII's younger sister, Mary, who we talked about in the first episode of this podcast. She married Charles Brandon. Their daughter, Frances Brandon, married Henry Gray. And that's where the gray girls come from in this situation. So really, if you want to narrow it down, the whole reason that things got so chaotic was firstly, that Edward, King Henry VIII's son died at age 15, and he wasn't married and he didn't have children. So and just every literally every other possible heir was a girl or a woman, which meant that Just a lot of men were freaking out about who they were going to put in place. Like, none of them specifically wanted a woman to be in charge, but it was going to have to be. There was, like, if you shook this family tree, there was no boys or men anywhere on it, except in the Scottish Catholic branch, but nobody wanted them. Anyway, so it was entirely unprecedented that the only possible candidates to take the throne after Edward were female. And the reason why his sisters, Mary and Elizabeth, weren't the obvious choices right now was because... They had been, at various times, made illegitimate, so their claims weren't 100% clear and perfect, and also because Edward, in his will, had stated that he wanted Jane Grey to be his heir. So this was around the same time that notorious misogynist John Knox, who was a preacher who I'll probably talk about more at length in one of the mini-episodes I have on my Patreon where I talk about men who suck, he preached things like, Quote, It is more than a monster in nature that a woman should reign and bear empire over man. So it really is, for a woman hating preacher, it was a good time because there was lots of women for him to hate, being queens all over the place. This is also a time of ferocious battles between Catholics and Protestants because of the whole Henry VIII breaking off from Rome situation. But all English subjects understood that their monarch was chosen by divine right. E.g., whoever God, like whoever the king was was because god had chosen them and if it had to be a woman then everyone had to figure out well, which woman do we think god wants in this scenario so we know we're going to get into lady jane gray about whom we know a lot from first-hand sources like her diaries and letters which helped to shape so we know not just who she is in name and what happened to her but also what she was like and what she wrote about one of the main sources that i used for preparing this is a non the biography crown of blood the deadly inheritance of lady jane gray and then also there's a book the sisters who would be queen the tragedy of mary catherine and lady jane gray by Leanna delisle two sources that i looked at in putting this all together and the sources i looked at were all both using a lot of first person accounts from people who were around at the same time so just to set the scene for what is happening just because all this sort of background stuff is important to understand what how and why all of this stuff happened. So in 1547 Edward Sixth was crowned king at age nine years old after the death of Henry VIII. He was around the same age as his cousin Jane Grey and Edward was a very devout protestant continuing his father's legacy to maintain. This is the official religion of England. His older half-sister, Lady Mary, who is, I think, in her 30s by this point, that's the future Queen Mary, was a Catholic, while Edward's other half-sister, Lady Elizabeth, was Protestant like him. Edward was a sickly person, so this made his various advisors uneasy, because if he died without naming an heir, then his he would be succeeded by his Catholic sister, who nobody wanted. And it was possible at this point, because she was in her 30s and she also had a lot of various illnesses, so it's possible that she might die without an heir, and then the whole question would just be like, who's going to be the king and or queen now? So she was, to a lot of people, not an ideal candidate to succeed him. And one of Edward's advisors was John Dudley, who we talked about last time a little bit. He was a highly ambitious and scheming aristocrat who was very influential over the king, So it was partly Dudley's influence that led to Edward deciding to make his own uh, document, lining out who he wanted, what the new line of succession was going to be. This was one that would discount both of his sisters on the basis of them being kind of illegitimate to some people. He also continued what his father had said and didn't let any of the Scottish claimants become possible here. That's the Mary, Queen of Scots of it all and that's a whole other season of the podcast, I'm sure. But it, what this will meant was that Edward's direct successor would be from the Gray family, of which Jane was the oldest, so it was going to need to be her. So she had been born in 1537, and her parents were Francis Gray and Henry Gray, so her grandmother was Mary Tudor, King Henry VIII's sister, so she was raised as a very privileged, very wealthy person, uh, her childhood was typical for an aristocratic girl of this time and era. She was the oldest of three sisters. The other ones were Catherine and Mary, and we're going to learn about them in later episodes. So they were raised on the family's country estate while their parents hung out in London, hanging out at royal court and that sort of thing. The first time that Jane is mentioned in any historical record in any major way was at age 10. She was sent to be a lady-in-waiting to Henry the, Henry VIII's, Six wife Catherine Parr so this was when Catherine Parr had just married Thomas Seymour so Henry VIII was dead Jane went off to be lady-in-waiting to Catherine Parr who's now living with her new husband so it was likely in this household so Catherine Parr we talked about before but she was a keen scholar super intellectual person and so she had a house where they had lots of events you know people would do debating different religious facts and stuff so it was a very is an environment that really showed Jane kind of what what an intellectual life could be maybe what a woman's life could be like and Jane was a very scholarly intellectual sort of person so she clearly flourished in this in this environment Elizabeth the future Queen Elizabeth I, who was also similar age of Jane also lived in the house at the same time and she was also a very intellectual person so Jane left her family home to live in this just really, in many ways, ideal situation for her, just around this influential woman, Catherine Parr, who is best friends with Catherine Willoughby, Jane's step-grandmother. So just getting to meet a lot of scholars, academics, and just women who were really intellectual and really vibrant and re- very much doing their own thing. Unfortunately, in the same household was Thomas Seymour, who, if you are a member of my Patreon... You can find there. I did a whole special episode just about Thomas Seymour and how he was the worst. I have a thing on the Patreon. So this asshole, which are mini podcast episodes about some of the gross men from these stories. And I put that information in those mini episodes so as to not derail these main episodes too much by talking about how gross these men are. But Thomas Seymour was awful. And eventually, so Jane wasn't living in Catherine Parr's house for for years and years. It was a pretty short time comparably because Catherine got pregnant and then she died in childbirth and then Thomas Seymour ended up trying to kidnap the king except the king was rescued by a dog. I get into this on my other podcast. And Jane was sent back to live with her parents. So at this point, we learn more about what she was like. And what she was like was a very opinionated uh, some might say self-righteous teenage person and this is this is what her personality was like but I think also having been in the house of Catherine Parr would have helped her realize that this is the sort of person who she wanted to be she wanted to be someone who could debate religious stuff and lecture people all the time so she criticized her parents lifestyle her parents were big spenders who like throwing parties and Jane thought that they should be more religious sorts of people uh, she voiced her displeasure to house guests. So she complained about her parents to people who were visiting them. Um, she even apparently requested that the local chaplain use his sermons at Mass to call out her parents for being such frivolous people that should be more serious. So she was really. This is the thing about Lady Jane Grey. It's not. She's well-known, and then especially in, like, artwork and stuff, for being this, like, poor victimized 16-year-old who all these terrible things happened to. But she was also, and I mean this in the most delightful way, just, like, a real asshole. And I, I love how much her personality and her character comes through. She ended up being used by a bunch of people, but she was always entirely herself, like, even if that meant that she was sort of unpleasant at times. So her extreme piety was such that religious scholars of the day wrote about her admiringly um, saying how she was, this is, you know, young women should be like this. So she was really leaning into a sort of personality and a sort of persona that was appealing to the people who she wanted to be accepted by, which were religious scholars, although it was probably annoying for her parents. But you know what? She was, what, at this point, like 14, 15 years old. So like, oh, surprise, she was kind of acting out a little bit. Like everybody does at that age. Meanwhile, John Dudley had decided that he thought... So the king is still alive. Little boy king, Edward, is still there. And he had these gross advisors, one of whom was John Dudley. And John Dudley was trying to find ways that he himself could be more powerful. And he thought, okay, well, if I marry my son to Jane Grey, maybe that could work out for me. So he was sort of thinking he wanted edward to name jane as his successor which i forget at this point if he had or not but whatever dudley wanted him to and he did so what john Dudley wanted to do was get himself closer to the crown and so what he decided to do was to marry jane to his son guildford which is a great name guildford dudley it's just a good name it looks nice it sounds nice and in the movie version of this story lady jane he's played by carrie elwes so he looks nice so Jane's parents, who were always happy for to get new opportunities to advance their daughter, especially Jane as um, their eldest, and was kind of the most, she was the smartest and the most talented, and they really put all their hopes and dreams onto her. So they thought, okay, this is a good match. Like marrying John Dudley said, Guilford is good, good for them. Um, Guilford was around her age. Apparently, he was handsome, potentially less terrible than other husbands she might have wound up with, but Jane both feared and mistrusted john dudley for obvious reasons john dudley was a huge schemer and just not trustworthy person at all but she was 16 and this was the 16th century so she really wasn't able to stop this from happening and so they were married these two teenagers on may 25th 1553 so you might recall she was queen in 1553 so it this turns into sort of a ticking clock of just how fast all these events happen one after another so the first major date here is may 25th 1553 so at their wedding the boy king edward was invited but he was too ill to attend and it was actually he was sick at this point with the same bout of illness that would eventually kill him or that he would die of he had been at this point finalizing his own wishes saying that jane would be his heir, although Jane herself, I don't think, knew that at this point. And just to note why he would have chosen Jane specifically to be his heir instead of her mother, because if you're going kind of in family tree order, her mother would be the next one. Frances, Jane's mother, was not an ideal queen, firstly because presumably she was past childbearing age, although she would have a few more pregnancies later on. But everything really hinged on someone having a male child. And at this point, I think you'd want someone to have like 12 male children. So this sort of situation wouldn't happen ever again. But the main thing in against Francis as a potential heir is that she was already married. And there's that whole thing about like, yeah, a woman can be queen. But whoever her husband is, is kind of actually in charge. And Henry Gray was also, Francis's husband, was seen as untrustworthy. So he'd kind of be in control. And that was not what... Edward or his advisors wanted so the document ended up saying uh, I think the wording is like the lady Jane and her heirs male as Edward's successor and then he died Edward King Edward shortly after this paper was finalized he died of tuberculosis on July 6th 1553 so that's about a month and a half after Jane married Guildford Dudley. so at this point things are going well for John Dudley, Jane's father-in-law, because his new daughter-in-law would be now named Queen, meaning his son would be King, meaning that Guildford would kind of be the one who's in charge of everything, but John Dudley would be the actual person making all the decisions behind the scene. But the main issue with this plan of John Dudley's to become extremely powerful is the fact that Mary, King Henry VIII's oldest daughter, was Still on the scene. She was alive and she was also really popular. So, the thing with Mary, the future Queen Mary, is that she was the daughter of Henry VIII and his first wife, Catherine of Aragon. And Catherine of Aragon had been really popular. She was queen for a really long time. I want to say decades. Let me just check. Because the whole thing of Henry VIII became the king when he was young and handsome, and everybody was really excited about it. Catherine of Aragon was his young, beautiful wife. Yeah, she was queen of England from 1509 until 1533. So she was the queen for a really long time. People really loved them as this young, hot couple. Their daughter, Lady Mary, everybody loved too. So Mary was popular on her own because she was kind of the the child of this queen who everybody still had fond feelings about. So she was still there. And to make Jane be the queen instead of Mary, like when Jane was not famous, Jane was not beloved. I mean, she's no one knew who she was. So this is a challenge. Lady Mary was a mighty opponent So John Dudley couldn't make the British subject stop supporting Mary, but he hoped that maybe by sort of hiding Mary away would make people like forget about her. So he sent out a messenger for Mary asking her to come to be by her dying by the dying king's bedside, which is like, okay, you know, Edward was dying. He sent a letter like come be with your little baby brother. But on the way there, Mary received word that this was actually a trap. And so she doubled back. She didn't show up. So he wasn't able to kind of kidnap her and hide her away. John DeLe tried to track her down, but he was not able to because guess what? She was actually pretty great too. His whole plan to sort of steal control of the country was, it was predicated on sort of like a surprise attack. So he just kind of kept going with it because that was his entire strategy. He was hoping that he'd kind of throw so much change, like so many new things at the country all at once that they wouldn't have time to miss Mary I guess. So on July 9th, so again, the King died on July 6th on July 9th, John Dudley had Mary and Elizabeth both publicly declared bastards illegitimate at this point. And he also highlighted how dangerous Mary in particular was because she was Catholic and she had ties to foreign Catholic countries. So he was just sort of paving the way for this surprise reveal that Jane Gray was going to be the new queen. Jane, meanwhile, did like literally, I think did not know that this, that she was going to be the heir to the throne. Everyone just assumed it would be Mary. So she was still coping with her very new marriage to Gilbert Dudley. They'd been married for, again, like a month and a half at this point. So unlike in the film, Lady Jane, which again, I heartily recommend, it is a really sweet and good movie, and I randomly caught it on TV once decades ago, and it's one of the reasons why I fell in love with studying the Tudor period, because Helena Bonham Carter and Carrie Ellis are so sweet in this movie— And they show this really sweet love story between them. But in real life, it was not a sweet love story. In fact, Guildford was awful. And Jane did not want to be married to him. And it was not a love story. And she would probably hate the movie. But it's a good movie. So Jane despised her husband. She despised the entire deadly family. Remember how much she was critical of her own family. The deadlies were like that. But even more so. Just like not, you know, religious enough. Not godly enough. They're always scheming and things. So she almost immediately ran back home to be with her parents like she ran away from her marriage entirely at one point she fell ill well sorry she went back to her parents and they made her go back to the deadlies obviously because that's what they had kind of sold her off to be married to them so of course they wanted her to go back there um at one point she fell ill and she accused the deadly family of trying to poison her which is It's an interesting twist. I don't think that the Dudleys would have tried to poison her because John Dudley's entire plan was predicated on her becoming queen. He would not want to have killed her, but who knows? Everybody, there's a lot of schemes going on. Anyway, so after the king had died, Jane rode with her sister-in-law, so one of the Dudley sisters, to one of the Dudley family estates just to like, I don't know, visit with the family and stuff. But as soon as she arrived she was greeted by her family like the greys as well as all of the Dudleys and a number of important aristocrats and she's like what's going on why is everybody here and it was at this point she was told that the king had died and that she jane grey was now the queen her documented reaction because people who saw it wrote down what it was like uh, she was not happy about this she's not even kind of like accepting you know just like with resignation like okay i guess But as they all knelt before her being like, you're the queen, she apparently said she was insufficient for the task. She didn't want to do this. She didn't think she should do this. But she said a quick prayer, promised to fulfill God's will and take the throne. So the whole God chooses the queen thing, I guess she was like, "Okay, this is I don't want this. I don't think this is right. But if God wants it, then here we go. Overall, her lack of enthusiasm was noted by the people who were there they were confused by this and kind of dismayed that she seemed to take this news kind of like they're like okay jane we need to like i don't know we need to you know cut off all your arms and legs she's like i guess if you have to okay go right ahead It, it was just not something she seemed at all interested in but it was something that she agreed to do so july 10th 1553 this is what four days after edward had died Jane was brought to Westminster Abbey and then to the Tower of London on a barge, which was the custom for all new sovereigns, sort of a parade. An eyewitness account of her arrival said, quote, or she said that she was, quote, Very short and thin, but prettily shaped and graceful. She has small features and a well-made nose, the mouth flexible and the lips red. The eyebrows are arched and darker than her hair, which is nearly red. Her eyes are sparkling and reddish brown in color. Her complexion was good, unmarked by the pox, but freckled. She had sharp white teeth and a lovely smile. Her husband, Guildford, was a very tall, strong boy with light hair, clothed in white and silver velvet, who paid her much attention. And then here's a really important thing. So that same day, Jane was moved into the royal apartments in the Tower of London. So side note, the Tower of London was not like a jail at this point. It was just another palace. So she was moved in there and she was brought a sampling of royal jewels to try on, including the crown. John Dudley was there urging her to try on the crown, but she refused several times. She just felt uncomfortable about it. She thought putting on the crown. She didn't want to do it. She felt weird about it. For good reasons, which we will see. She finally agreed to have the crown put on her head, but she never actually requested it. So, this is that detail becomes important later on, which is a weird detail, but just bear in mind, she never actually said, Put the crown on my head. She just allowed someone else to do it. So in the course of a conversation, Dudley casually mentioned that his son, Guildford, would get a crown, too, after Jane made him king. Because uh, men weren't automatically named kings when their wives became queens, the queen had to decide to do this. But the assumption was that she would decide to do this. Jane, already, I just love this, that John Dudley had all these, all his plans were all set up, but he hadn't accounted for the fact that Jane Grey had her own personality and her own opinions and was not... One to be led. She was not a good puppet figure. So Jane said that she might name Guildford a duke, but that was it. She was not going to name him a king. And Guildford then freaked out about this. He brought in his mother. His mother screamed at Jane, but Jane would not change her mind because she was great. She was the 16 year old girl with very strong opinions. And I think from even just the brief time spent with Catherine Parr and probably from her. The influence of seeing someone like Anne ask you, who just stuck to her guns. She ha- had developed this personality for herself that was very opinionated and very confident in her choices. So then word came the, to Jane that Guilford and his mother were trying to flee. She had guards stand by the exits to keep them inside. So she was, they thought that they were going to be able to boss around, but in fact, she was the boss. And this is a nice moment. Two days later, on July 12th, john dudley announced that he was going to muster an army and putting in charge of that was henry Grey, jane's father so the army was going to go off to fight against mary i think who is still very intent on trying to become queen instead of jane so jane burst into tears not wanting her father to go to war or burst into tears because everything is happening really fast and this is a wild situation so the council decided to send, instead of her father leading the army, they sent John Dudley to lead the forces instead. I want to mention too that her mother Frances was here with her this whole time supporting her. So even though Jane had been at times critical of her mother, Frances was right there with her supporting her. So it, it does follow maybe that Jane didn't want her father to go off to war. She was in this scary situations. So of course she wanted her parents there with her. So these troops headed out across the country, finding themselves in town after town which had decided on their own not to accept jane as queen but rather to declare lady mary as the true ruler so john dudley was leading these forces who were supposed to go around quashing these rebellions these pro-mary rebellions but he couldn't stop the popular opinion he just hadn't counted for how strongly people really supported mary in this situation, so even those who were opposed to Catholics could somehow sense the unfairness of Jane being crowned instead of Mary. So there just wasn't—they didn't have the popular, the popular opinion on their side. The wind had clearly shifted back in London as well. So while John Dudley was off with his troops, members of the Privy Council attempted to flee the palace because they felt like if they were there, caught supporting Jane, they might get in trouble. Because everyone at this point was assuming Mary was probably going to take over, somehow. Again, Jane had guards keep them inside, and she also locked the main gates of the tower to prevent anyone from escaping. The members of the Privy Council finally snuck out one way or another. They ran into a Spanish ambassador and claimed to have always supported Mary, actually, and they said they were forced against their will by Dudley to back Jane. So everyone is just fleeing from supporting her entirely. Jane was then eating supper with her father when she learned that she had been deposed as queen. So what had happened was that Mary had her... She put together her own forces and army, and they were coming towards... They were just coming to seize power effectively. And the support for Jane was so insignificant at this point that Mary... it was It was a bloodless attack. Like, there wasn't even a battle. Jane's troops just kind of gave in right away because Mary had the support of literally the whole country. So her father went back to his home in london leaving jane alone she was removed from the royal apartments and brought to a different castle while everyone tried to figure out what to do with her now because mary had was queen jane was not anymore so jane was brought to a different palace while everyone tried to figure out what to do with her mary was accepted by basically everyone as the true queen and was en route to the tower of london to officially take over John Dudley and his entire family were arrested, and Jane's parents were arrested too briefly, but the Greys were released pretty soon after, although Jane was still kept there. When Mary arrived on August 3rd, the crowds were cheering, everybody was excited to see her, and she ordered Jane Grey to be imprisoned in the Tower of London. Jane herself appealed to Mary in a letter outlining how she had never wanted any of this. She accepted it was a mistake to accept the crown. So remember earlier when they tried to put the crown on her head and she said no, and then finally they put the crown on her head. Like the issue here is putting the crown on her head. That was the act of treason, having the crown be put on her head. So Jane said, it was a mistake. I shouldn't have let them put the crown on my head. And she said she was misled by others into thinking this was the right thing to do. Mary, for her part, believed that Jane was guiltless in this. Like she knew that it was all John Dudley and other people scheming. Jane was just kind of caught up in it. And Mary was reluctant to put Jane to death because she felt like Jane was innocent in all of this. Although she, Mary had no such doubts about John Dudley, who was put to death in August. That August, what is it now? It's Mary arrived on August third. Later that same month, John Dudley was put to death for engineering this whole situation. So Jane's imprisonment was not. It was in terms of imprisonments, it was like an okay one. She was permitted to have a small salaried staff, an allowance, and the freedom to go read and go for walks in the Queen's Garden. So, again, she was such a, a big reader and an intellectual and a scholar, so she spent much of her time either reading or writing. And it's through her writing from this period that we know as much as we do about her life and her feelings about things. Eventually, though, what happened is that Mary came to accept that Jane's continued survival would always be a threat to her power. So Mary was Catholic. When she became queen, she made... England be a Catholic country again but there were lots of people who would rather it be a Protestant country and as long as there was a potential heir who could be a Protestant queen that would always mean that there was people in opposition to Mary's reign so Jane, Jane was a threat as a even just if she was sitting you know wandering the gardens reading books even just as a figurehead she was a threat to Mary's power and also the fact that she had been named queen it was it was seen to as sort of like a sign of weakness if Mary let her survive so reluctantly Mary ordered Jane Guildford and the other Dudley brothers to stand trial for the charge of high treason this trial was quick so each of the defendants pled guilty to the charge and then were sentenced to death however it was widely believed that Jane's sentence would never actually be carried out her family had all converted back to Catholicism and regain their position of privilege. We talked about this last time, about how her mother, Frances, had worked so hard to really regain the family's reputation again. So, Frances and Jane's sisters were given positions as ladies of waiting to the queen, and her mother was specifically noted as one of Mary's favorites, and the two of them had been longtime friends. So, Jane was sentenced to be executed, but everyone kind of thought that was like theoretically only. But then, of course, things went poorly mary at this point was still unmarried and she really wanted to marry the king of spain which despite the fact that she had been basically acclaimed queen because everybody loved her so much marrying the king of spain was a very unpopular thing for her to do it soured public opinion against her um, her advisors didn't want her to marry the king of spain her The people of England didn't want her to marry the King of Spain. Just no one was a fan of this situation. So again, uprisings in the countryside began to rally against her, which meant that Jane's role as a figurehead started to become an actual threat, not just a theoretical threat, to Mary as Queen. Making things worse, Jane's father joined in with this rebellion, actively working to try and depose Mary, which was just a bad decision on his part, obviously. And yet, Mary was still reluctant to actually execute her cousin Jane Grey Mary sent a prominent Catholic scholar to speak with Jane in hopes of convincing her to convert to Catholicism which would basically save her life because if Jane publicly said she was Catholic then she wouldn't be a Protestant rival and then it wouldn't be an issue but the thing is Jane had at this point been basically preparing her whole life for this conversation for somebody to challenge her religious faith so she would look up to her heroines like Anne Askew or Catherine Parr and so she very capably rebutted every debate point over several hours with this person who was trying to make her be Catholic. And in fact, she was so good at this debate and made such an impact on her visitor that their visit concluded, and she obviously had not converted to Catholicism, but he was so won over by her that he offered to escort, personally escort her up the scaffold for her execution. And the date was set for her beheading on February 12th, 1554. So Jane was very organized in preparing for her death like she accepted this was going to happen and again this is where i feel like she would have looked to the writing and the work and the example of anne askew of just accepting your death and becoming sort of a martyr for your faith and finding strength in accepting this so jane organized every aspect she chose her dress she wrote a speech um decided which members of her staff would dispose of her body So from where she was being kept in the Tower of London, she witnessed the execution of her husband, Guildford Dudley, and she watched as they constructed the scaffolding for her own execution. When she appeared for her own execution, she is said to have been poised and dignified, dressed all in black, carrying her own beloved prayer book. So again, I really feel like following the example of Anne, well, Anne Askew couldn't walk at the time, but she was very... Poised and very, very stoic in the face of execution. So her execution was witnessed by only a small crowd out of respect for her royal blood because she was the granddaughter of Henry VIII's sister. So at the top of the scaffold, Jane gave prepared remarks. She admitted to committing treason by, again, like her crime was letting people put the crown on her head. Then she recited a psalm. Things were going as she had planned as she had organized for herself until the executioner stepped towards her to take her cloak. It was a custom at the time for the executioner to get to keep the victim's outer garments. I guess that was just a perk of the job of executioner. But Jane either didn't know this or forgot about it. She was surprised that he wanted to take her cloak. And so she jumped back asking him to leave her alone. The executioner did kind of what he's supposed to do, which is he knelt before her begging forgiveness, which is just kind of part of the theater of an execution Jane granted forgiveness because that was part of what she was supposed to do as the person being executed and then she was overheard then asking him to dispatch of her quickly but then things went it's just sad so Jane asked the executioner for instructions about when and how to put on her blindfold after she put it on she couldn't find the wooden block where she was to lay her head because she was wearing a blindfold and she panicked she cried out for help asking what shall I do where is it And this was unexpected. No one had seen, no one expected her to do this. And this was not what usually happened at executions. And nobody on the platform came to help her. And it's just sad. Finally, someone came up from the crowd, apparently, and helped guide her into the proper position. And Lady Jane Grey's final words were, Lord, into thy hands I commend my spirit. So she had planned for what she wanted to have happen to her body after the execution but the church that her body was supposed she'd planned for her body to be taken to had recently reverted back to catholicism under mary and so her body may no longer be welcome because she was protestant and so her remains her body remained on the ground exposed for almost 4 hours as people sorted out where they could take it her servants kept an eye on her body during this time finally They were permitted to bring her body to the now Catholic Church where she was laid to rest between two other beheaded queens, Henry VIII's second and fifth wives, Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard. Her father was executed 11 days later. Just a few years later, Queen Mary died without children and Elizabeth ended up taking over as queen after her. She made the country Protestant again. And at this point, Jane Grey was celebrated as a martyr to the Protestant faith. And that's the weird story of Lady Jane Grey, a.k.a. How to Lose a Queen in Nine Days. So we're going to score her now on the scandalous scale. And as per everybody this season, it's, it's a challenging and interesting and different sort of thing to look at because she wasn't somebody who, like, her actions were scandalous for the time. Like, becoming queen, like, putting a crown on your head was apparently worthy of execution so we're looking at how scandalous was this, given the place and time. So scandalousness is where we look at kind of what, of the, the scandalousness of the story, how um, extreme was it, kind of how juicy is it, how much of a story was it that people would gossip about later. And honestly, I'm going to give this a 9.5. Jane Grey gets that because, ugh, I might even give her a 10. Because she wasn't, it's not like people in previous seasons who were like murdered people or, you know, had secret weddings or whatever. But the fact that she became queen and this is like, not that she wanted to, but she accepted it like to us, like, okay, people kind of made her be queen and then put a crown on her head. It's like, well, what does that have to do with her? But at the time it was entirely connected to her. She was the one who took the blame for it. She ended up being executed for it. You know what? Why not? I'm going to give her a full, no, 9.5, I think. For scandalousness. For scheminess, this is where we look at not just literal schemes, but just sort of how much this person had had their own plans and executed them and did them. And this is where I don't think Jane Grey has a lot in her story about this because she just wanted to study religious philosophy and have debates with people. Like she became queen not at all because of her own schemes. Like there's lots of scheminess around her. And then when she became queen and then she's like, oh, guess what? I'm not going to make Guilford be a king like she had her plans. If she'd been queen for longer, we would have maybe seen what they were. But I'm going to give her, I think, just a five for scheminess, which is sort of like the lowest I feel like I can go. Significance is an interesting one because she wasn't... Not everyone recognized her as having actually been the queen. Like she put the crown on. So that kind of like that was treason. Well, it was treason because she allegedly wasn't the queen but she kind of was the first sort of queen of England, which is very significant. Hmm. It's tricky. It's like, to me personally, I feel like she was a queen, but she wasn't ever actually recognized as such, and it was just nine days. It's tricky. I'm going to say her significance. I don't know, but then also the way that she became queen like that. At first, it helped galvanize support behind Mary, where before other people might have not supported her as a Catholic queen. Having Jane be there made them like Mary more, but then they didn't like her later. I'm going to give her a seven for significance, I think. The sexism bonus is where we look at how much bullshit did she have to put up with from the patriarchy. And this whole situation is so much sexism. Like if she had been a man or a boy, a 16-year-old boy, so many more people would have been okay with her taking over. If any of the people in this, like if there'd been any boy anywhere on the Tudor family tree, if it was, if any of the greys had been male, if Mary or Elizabeth were boys, like this whole chaotic succession thing would not have happened. And that's entirely because of sexism. It's not because women aren't just as capable as leaders. It's just because there's so much more respect given to a male potential monarch than to a woman. So the sexism, like that's, But then she did become queen. So it's not like because she was a girl, she couldn't. But then Mary was able to so capably dispatch with her because she was a girl. Like if she had been 15 year old Sir James Gray or Lord James Gray, like it would have been a lot harder for Mary to defeat him. So the fact she was a girl, a young girl acted against her. I'm going to give her, I think a seven for the sexism bonus. No, eight. Eight for six is a bonus. So let me just add this up. So that is twenty-nine point five. This is this is notable because that puts her tied at fifth place in terms of the scandalous scale. I believe there are twenty people on this list now. At the top of the scale is Joanna of Naples, has thirty-three. Currently in fifth place was Queen Anne the First with twenty-nine point five, and she is now tied with Lady Jane Grey. In fifth place, 29.5. And so that's the highest score at all this season. The closest was Jane's grandmother, Mary Tudor, who got a 27.5. So well-earned, Lady Jane Grey. She had a short, weird life. She sounds like she was an interesting and strange person. And she just got caught up in all of these schemes of all these other gross people. And Like even Mary didn't even want to execute her. So that's the Jane Grey of it all. We're going to continue on with the season because just because Jane herself was executed, there were still, as soon as she was executed, then her sisters became the next threat. Like that didn't neutralize the entire threat of the Grey family. So we're going to be looking at kind of the aftermath, what happened to the other descendants of Mary Tudor in the, after the execution of Lady Jane Grey. And that's what we'll be looking at for the next few episodes of the season. So this is the Vulgar History Podcast. You can find us all over the place. So on Instagram, Vulgar History Pod, Twitter at Vulgar History. My writing, my various writing about historical women and that sort of stuff is all at anfosterwriter.com. I have a Patreon, which is patreon.com slash anfosterwriter, and that's where you can find behind the scenes info. And also that's where I post the Patreon exclusive mini episodes, which are a series called So This Asshole where I just look into the gross men from these stories and just explain why they were awful. Currently, there's one there about Thomas Seymour, who is just the worst. And then I'm working on one right now about Robert Dudley. So that's where you can find this all on Patreon. I have my, you can get merch at teespring.com stores slash vulgar history. All these links are in the show notes, but that's where we have t-shirts and fabric face masks and dog jackets and things with some paying tribute to the the women and girls of this podcast season and also if you go to this link is in the show notes too but if you go to bookshop.org I'm maintaining a list there of all the books that I mention in this podcast the ones that I use for research purposes and just ones that I think are good books so thank you so much for tuning in and I'll talk to you all next time remember to keep your masks on and your tits out